And even on, on the village, growing up a little, uh, you know, a little older, somewhere on the village, you could, you know, walk through the village, you listen to local bars, and you listen to the kind of conversations that men had about women and girls at local bars. Mm. You could listen to stories like, you know, a little girl passes by or she goes by and you hear these aged men say, oh, she's about now 13 or what, and now I think it's the time to get something out of her. And you're talking mm-hmm. of bride price. They want to sell these girls. The, mm-hmm. So all the all that a woman was worth was a woman's worth then was simply about you know uh, someone looked at her from you know men looked at women in terms of girls, especially in terms of property. When I marry her off, they give me cows, they give me this, they give me money and all that. Mm-hmm. So as a young man, connecting that to what I you know what I've I've seen my what I've seen my mom go through. I started questioning, one, the place of a woman in society. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, this is Ronit. A note to listeners that for this particular interview, I needed to use a remote recording technology that usually I don't use, and I was new to it. So I didn't master my sound quality as much as I would have liked to, but I really hope that you enjoy the content. I had a great experience talking with Sam Samaganda over in Uganda about his work as a male women activist. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sam Simaganda. He's a Ugandan male women activist, a journalist, an author, and a poet. He's also the founder and team leader at Black Candle Media. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ronit. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm very glad you're here. So, Sam, when I found out that you were a male women activist, I did stop for a minute to try to figure out what that was. I'd never heard the term before, and so I was hoping you can explain a little bit about it and how it came to be that you decided that that's what you are. Great question, Ronnie. I would say this, uh, in places where I come from, Africa and in Uganda to be particular, we've had to come a long way dealing with issues of uh, the rights of women and girls. And at the very bottom of, of all these issues sits something we call patriarchy. It's very big, it's been very deep rooted in our society. It has cut across every sector. And uh, when you realize that uh, these are the realities on the ground, and when we talk about empowering women and girls, and the many times you have to remember that we've come a long way as a country and uh, these efforts have been uh, pushed by, you know, women. I mean, the women have had to cause some noise for a long time. But along the way, I think we've had a gap uh, where men have not played a role. We've had a gap where men have just, you know, had to look the other side and look the other way. And uh, this has been a losing battle, talking about the, the, the issues of, you know, the, the rights of women and, and girls, violence against women and girls. Uh, sexual violence in particular, domestic violence, you know, all these things. So it, it, I realized as a young man growing up and now as an adult that uh, this gap has to be filled and that uh, someone has to start uh, the, the, the effort, someone has to champion the effort to step mm-hmm. into these gaps. For this battle to be won, I realized that uh, the contribution of men who are, by the way, the perpetrators, the biggest perpetrators of these issues of, of violence against women, mm-hmm. The men had to play a role. And I looked around, I said, I'm not going to start with any other man apart from me. Mm-hmm. So I chose to stand in the gap. So that's how it comes to be a male a women activist. For someone who doesn't live in Uganda and isn't aware of what the progress has been, is there a way that you can kind of explain what the main obstacles are that face women and, and children or girls? Oh, sure. Another great question from you, Ronit. Things like the right to, to go to school, everyone of us knows that it should be everyone is right. I mean, everyone has a right to go to school and attain an education and uh, pursue the future they, can, they, they want to pursue. Uh, but places where I come from, well, communities where we've come from uh, for a long time, uh, someone to take a girl child to school has been uh, 
not so much of a priority, you know, when it comes to representation, uh, you know, women have not been so much on the fore. Um, when it comes to even simply, you know, in the marriage, you know, rights in the marriage, who should own land, who should own property and all that. These have been very, very difficult discussions to have in this country. Mm-hmm. There's been some bit of progress, deliberate uh, efforts have been taken uh, from, you know, policy formation, policy making and all that. But it has been, it's quite a long way. We still have to go. And my point here is that as a great addition to these efforts, uh, because most of them have been championed by women who have, you know, put themselves together, got themselves together, you know, held each other's hands and mm-hmm. tried to, you know, push a voice through. My point is this battle won't be won. These points won't sink in if men don't play an active role on mm-hmm. these issues. You know, so that's why I, I call upon all the men, starting with myself, my peers, my friends, and and whoever can reach out to, to see that we we see we start to see the obvious first. Because many times it's very sad and very appalling in communities and societies where I come from that mm-hmm. we tend to often see the obvious last. Mm-hmm. Do you find other men like you? What's been the response to what you're doing from men? The truth of the matter is it's been a very cold, frozen response that I've had to receive. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough battle to even get to someone, a man, to start to listen to this kind of conversation uh, because it all you know, goes back into the deep-rooted patriarchy that takes it as a, as, as a norm that males should simply dominate in, what, in whichever aspect of life. So mm-hmm. to get these men who have enjoyed this space for a long time to accept, to even simply pay a listening ear, you know, have a moment to listen to this conversation, it's been a struggle. It's still a struggle, but I know at the end of the day, someone has to stand in the gap. Someone has to champion that voice. Someone has to put out a voice on this. So it's, the reception is very cold, uh, but we are not relenting. We are not letting go. We are not getting hands off. We are pushing, and we know at the end of the day, slowly by slowly, bit by bit, bit by bit, here and there, and uh, looking at a holistic way to approach this from all sectors, from all angles, I think progress is there already, which Mm -hmm. is very good. Mm -hmm. When did you realize, and and I I realize we might be getting into the story of your youth, but when did you realize that you had a different outlook that you were an ally or that you saw things differently as a boy or as a man than your peers? I think the answer to this question um, has a very direct bearing to how I, I was born, circumstances uh, that surrounded you know, the times I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this will, without a doubt, will have to take me down, to, down that story, down that lane. Uh, there is an old adage uh, that goes that uh, it's the troubles that befall a man that actually help bring out the best in him. I think mm-hmm. that old adage comes very true to my life and to my life story. I was born the morning after the evening of my father's death. I can put it in simple perspective. My dad passed on like, you know, for example, tonight and I was born, you know, tomorrow, the other tomorrow morning. It, it kind of, you know, issues that surrounded him the times uh, I was born kind of started to form my kind of, you know, line of questioning of a number Mm -hmm. of things in life. So growing up as a young man with a single mother in deep rural Uganda, I started questioning a number of things. First of all, from uh, the kind of treatment that my mom received, because as a young boy, when I, you know, pretty young, but uh, when I started to tell black from white, you know, and then my eyes opened up to the realities that surrounded um, the kind of conditions that we lived in with my mom, kind of treatment that I received from my paternal relatives, uh, the people that I expected to have been the protectors of mm. uh, this widow, and then with this little baby, a young boy to raise, uh, the kind of treatment that we received from them, for me, uh, sunk my heart as a young boy growing up in African tradition society and, and uh, you know, the, the times where we've come from. If a girl, if a woman was married off to uh, to a family somewhere, uh, there, there seems to always be little intervention from her family to matters, uh, you know, that are happening or issues going on where she's married. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I don't know, it was a very, I think, a cake. It was a very barbaric, you know, kind of practice. But uh, those were the circumstances then. And so when I realized that uh, she, she wasn't having a good time with people that would have been protectors of my mom and I, a young baby to raise, I started questioning things. First of all, I don't know if you've heard about something called widow inheritance. It's a very disturbing uh, issue to to understand. Like back in the days in Africa, and uh, I've been told, even in some places, it still does happen, even some places in Uganda, that uh, a husband passes on and uh, this widow is then, um, you know, kind of forced, because I wouldn't say it would be out of her will, out of her, you know, interest. Uh, He's forced to, to kind of, get adopted or ma- married by one of the brothers of uh, her late husband. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of automatic and the woman had to simply give in. And this is something my mom, I watched my mom vehemently refuse and she pushed, she, she had to push against all this. And uh, it's, it's, it's one I know I later on got to learn and it was one of the reasons why she was badly treated, inhumanly treated and later on forced away from her, you know, marital home. And mm-hmm. uh, they came. Uh, apart from that, because I kept wondering every time I could see a mom in, you know, up in, in arms, in up in, in quarrels, in endless quarrels, in, in endless fights with, with my relatives, I, I couldn't understand as, as a young man. She kept a lot to her soul. But every time, every night, I could hear her cry uh, alone. And uh, I kept it kept bothering me. And many times when I asked, the questions she couldn't give me answers. I knew that she protected. She kind of tried to protect my mind, mm-hmm. uh, not to, you know, not to get so angry as a young man, not to get so emotional, or not to lose it as a young man. But I knew that even when she didn't provide those answers, somewhere along the way, it disturbed me, and it mm-hmm. has never left my mind. I saw with my eyes as a young man, uh, my relatives come to our house, take property, land, and everything that we own. As I was watching, I was watching as a young man. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I didn't see my mom, you know, uh, having a voice mm-hmm. to raise. I didn't see her with, uh, with, with the ability. I didn't see anyone coming to, you know, stand with her. And she watched and had her hands, you know, held back as everything went. As my parents, I mean, my, my relatives came, took everything. They could even come to our house. And someone takes, you know, something from our house and I'm watching and she's just looking on. No one came to, to help her. No one came to stand with her. I was mm-hmm. watching. And as I speak right now, some of them have passed on. But when I speak right now, as I close my eyes, I can see their faces. I can even see some of I can still see some of these scenes play when I close my eyes, like it's happened yesterday. Some of these things started, you know, kind of uh, writing themselves with, an, I would say, an indelible ink on my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and Right now, I can still remember everything like it happened yesterday. So the questioning that I had, I had to later on put in perspective on a number of issues in life started right then as a young man, started right then when I was watching some of these things. And even on, on the village, growing up a little, uh, you know, a little older somewhere on the village, you could, you know, walk through the village, you listen to local bars and you listen to the kind of conversations that men had about women and girls at local bars. Mm. You could listen to stories like, you know, a little girl passes by or she goes by and you hear this aged man say, oh, she's about now 13 or what. And now I think it's the time to get something out of her. And you're talking mm-hmm. of bride price. They want to sell these girls. Mm-hmm. So all the all that a woman was worth was a woman is worth then was simply about you know uh, someone looked at her from you know men looked at women in terms of girls, especially in terms of property. When I marry her off, they give me cows, they give me this, they give me money and all that. Mm-hmm. So as a young man, connecting that to what I you know what I've I've seen my I'd seen my mom go through. I started questioning, one, the place of a woman in society, the place of a girl child in society. I could hear men, you know, throwing out big statements on how they can't, you know, waste their money, waste, you know, uh, their their hard-earned money on educating a girl child. What's Mm -hmm. the purpose of educating a child? 
And these things kind of disturbed me. I was like, oh, so are girls different? I started asking myself, are women less human? I started asking myself. And I also asked question, I had questions like, did my mom commit a crime? Did my mom cause the death of my father? That question was very constant. It kind of played back and forth every now and then in my mind. What do you think that was about, the question about your mother and a crime? I, I, because the way she was treated kind of got me to think, to question whether it was, it was like punishment for my daddy's death. Mm-hmm. Because I, I kept wondering why, she this, why was she receiving this kind of treatment? I couldn't figure it out. Did you have the kind of relationship with your mother at this point where you could talk to her about your feelings? Did you discuss these things or did you keep them to yourself? I, I tried at some point I, because I know that every time I saw this happen and uh, there are times when I could just silently just look at her and then I didn't know where to start, whether to question because every time I tried to ask something, she would be like, it's all right, it'll be fine. You, you can't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 later on growing up, I, I was trying to think, was she trying to protect me? Was she trying to? But then everything was playing right before my eyes. Mm-hmm. So, but then there are times when I really could, um, um, you know, uh, could really get serious and very honest with her. And I could put the questions, the hard questions behind, because I got angry at some point. Mm-hmm. I lost it. I, I just, at some point, I really lost it when I could see them just come, grab things. Uh, when she could tell me, you know what, we had land in this kind of place. Uh, your uncle took it over. And your uncle is now, you know, um, growing s- crops there, growing stuff there. Mm-hmm. And I think now he has taken over that. And I, I got angry. With the time, my anger started building. And then she she, she used to tell me, uh, you know what, they are your relatives. So I don't have power now. I'm simply a widow. And I, I really can't do much. So I, I, with the time, we, glo- we, we got a little closer and I, I started asking the tough questions, but I knew her, her answers were not that forthcoming, you know, but I, she tried. How did she make a living? How, and, and it's also, it's important to note that these were your family members, but it sounds like, did anyone offer you kindness or treat you like their nephew or a cousin? Was their kindness extended to you? It was very, very tough. And up to now, I still ask myself just the same question. Why didn't, why didn't I see? Because these were my relatives. It, it, didn't, it, it doesn't actually, it, many times it, it bothers me to understand or to take it in. It, it's a bit hard and very complicated. I mean, mm-hmm. given the kind of treatment they gave us. But along the way, uh, we could uh, have small bits, bits here and there of comfort from not even our relatives, my relatives. But neighbors, uh, you know, a few friends from the village, uh, my mom, you know, could just confide in and share her stories, this and that. They uh, Sometimes they could provide us with a few things to, you know, to push on, you know, necessities in the house. Um, then um, she could also try to sell some crops and uh, some little pieces of land were left. And of course, she she, she, she used to go to, to the garden and, and dig and all that. So it was really tough, especially mm-hmm. I, I kept wondering what exactly she used to go through because someone has just lost their husband uh, and now they have a baby. And this is the kind of treatment that she, she, she's receiving. I, I, up to now, I, I, I just kept wondering. I just kept thinking. Mm-hmm. And I can't, put, I can't put my head around how she managed to, mm-hmm. to even you know, push on and all that. But finally, when she refused to give in to uh, their demands, uh, including widow inheritance, she was pushed and forced out of her house, of her her marital home. And now she had to leave me in the home of a paternal uncle uh, Mm. where I never had a childhood, absolutely. Because years later on, I joined her. I think I joined her when I was about 10. Because she left, I was about uh, five or so, six. And then she, I joined her later on when I was 10. But then when I put the questions to her later on, she told me that they told her that this is our child. It's not your child. Mm-hmm. And it's one of uh, those other very barbaric kind of practices that have uh, been deep-rooted in our society, that when a woman gives birth to a child, a lot of you know, rights for that child are onto the money side, 
when you lived with your father's family, what were those five years like? It was hell. I can say this, I don't know, with my heart sinking. It was hell. From the, the reality of being separated from my mom, because as, as, as a boy, as, as, a, as, a, as a young man growing up, at about five, you don't have a father. And now the only father you had in a mother, because my mom, mom, mom I've, I've, I've said this before, that the only father I ever had in my life was my mom. So she, she played her role, but she didn't forget uh, those of, of, of a father. So she, was, she, she played the two roles. I mean, I mean the, the, she played two, mother and father. But now she was forced to leave me behind. That alone disturbed me because these people were like, were complete outsiders to us. We were strangers. My relatives were strangers to me. I didn't feel like these were people that, I were, that, that really loved us, that I didn't feel welcome in this, in, in this home where I went, in this house where I went. I felt I was not welcome. I felt I just had to simply stay in this place. And from the way they treated me, from the way they welcomed me, from the way, from the way everything went in that house, I couldn't... I could I could never have a voice. I could never talk about anything. I could never, at some point, I even couldn't tell, even if I was in pain, even if something, even if there was there are times when I could like fall ill as a child, but I couldn't raise a voice. I couldn't speak because I, I didn't have a voice. Like there was so much fear. There was so much anger against me. And I kept asking myself, what wrong did I do? I'm simply a five, five, six year old boy. What exactly did I do? Um, there could be conversations in the house, and there could be, you know, like there could be any topic, any conversations in the house. Every time I try to say something about something, someone could thunder at me. Mm. The lady of the house, you know, she could thunder at me, and I kept wondering. So that sunk my heart, like it closed my my voice. I couldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And later on, it kind of affected me with issues like self-expression, you know. I struggled a lot, I mean, a lot later on in life to express myself, to really sim- uh, simply put up a hand, even if it was in class. There are times when I remember I could be in class, like in primary or, or high school, and uh, it was possibly um, the teacher could come and ask a question, and uh, I knew I, I had the answer. I knew I, I knew I knew the answer. Mm. And I couldn't raise a hand because I, I kept struggling with inside me to come to terms with the fact that, you know what, I, I'm, I have the right to speak. Mm-hmm. I can speak, I can make a point. But it came from a very long you know, history of being shattered, of being thundered at every time I try to raise a voice. So my childhood, I, I, don't, I wouldn't really want to think I had a childhood. Mm. And, and were you in touch with your mother at all at this time or no? Absolutely. There was no contact for the years I stayed there for the five years or so that I said there was no contact, no, uh, there was no phone, we didn't have phone or mobile phones, or there, there was no way, it was absolute no contact. And that actually killed me, that killed me uh, like deeper inside. I could not pass a message to her, no, I could not send anyone to, sit, to pass my greetings for to just simply check to know mm-hmm. how she's doing for five years. Did you think you happened. were never gonna see her again? Yeah, time came when I kind of had to tell my voice. I think maturity came to me when I was, at the time when I was very young. I started growing myself. I started maturing. I had to find a way to mature and then to talk to myself, to, to counsel myself, to put myself in a corner and then to start figuring out things because I was in a house with so many people, but I was all alone all the time. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I started talking to myself and I, Time came when I when I told myself, I think this is it. This is how life is gonna be. Maybe my, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm never gonna see my mom again. But along the way, some kind of voice kept telling, maybe you'll never know. Maybe you know. Maybe someday. Maybe maybe maybe. And then I had to start going to school. So they uh, because the the, um, the 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 kids in the house who are going to school, I started asking my uncle, I was like, maybe I should also go to school. Maybe, maybe, I wish I could also go to school. So, but then they got me, they took me to a school. Oh my God, I, every time I remember memories of how I started going to school, my heart freezes again. I, I had to walk 
I don't know how many miles were those. Quite, quite a long distance. On foot, no shoes, barefoot. You go through valleys, you go through hills, very isolated places. You walk through forests as a young child. By yourself? By myself, every morning, by myself. It was far away, many miles away, barefoot. It could rain, it could shine on me. Sometimes the rain could catch me in the middle of those valleys, those deserted places. Mm-hmm. And you had to walk, you had to walk through. I had to walk through. I had to make, if I was very lucky to meet a few kids on, on, on the way and all that. And many times, most of the times, by the way, I walked on, on, on an empty stomach without having breakfast. Mm-hmm. You could just say, if you wanted to go to school, okay, go to school. You mm-hmm. can go to school. Mm-hmm. I wonder if being at school was better, though, than being in the house. With the time, I realized that being at, I mean, being at school, hungry as I was, it kind of created a bit of a different environment because I, I was for a moment, I was for some time cut away from the faces of these people. Mm-hmm. And then even at school, I was always somewhere in the corner alone. I was, I mean, it was tough for me, but at least it felt better for the hours I could be away at school. Mm-hmm. I remember I've been thinking to myself lately, there is, there is a girl uh, on our village, they, their house was not so far away from, from ours. Sometimes during breaks, I could, uh, she could come to me and say, oh, how are you, Sam? Oh, I know you stay uh, you know, in so-and-so's how, uh, place. Uh, how are you? Did you have lunch? I think along the way, because you see, even when people or the neighborhoods, people couldn't intervene and have a word, I think sometimes you know, maybe she could hear from her parents about the kind of treatment that I received because mm-hmm. village people knew, neighbors knew, they could tell, oh, that's so-and-so's late son, you know, but the kind mm-hmm. of treatment, the way they treat him, they, they, you know, villagers could, neighbors could know. Mm. So I think some of these kids, they could hear their parents talk about my story. So this girl came a little closer to me. We could take break time uh, and then, uh, you know, kids could have something to eat or this and that. But Many times she walked up to me and she didn't, she didn't see me eat anything. She, so she got a little concerned. She used to carry a little something extra for me to eat, uh, you know, during our breaks or at school. So before I know she could give me something, before I know she could open her container and mm. then she could give me something. I, I, I don't know that I've been to the village. I, I, right now when I go back to the village, I've been trying to trace her. I mean, I mean, there are things I want to tell her. Are, I just want to say thank you to her, you know. But they tell me she moved places and all. But I'm, 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 I'm still looking for her. I, I know she's she's a big lady now. She, I, I was told she got married. She has kids and all. But I just simply want to say thank you because she kind of looked out for me. I, I don't know how she did that. She was like an angel sent by. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So she started giving me comfort. She's like, no, uh, you can talk to me. Are you, you so alone she wasn't in my class but she came she used to come to my class to look out for me and she mm. could i don't know um, so kind of my my heart kind of started feeling a little warmer from strangers not from mm-hmm. my close people mm-hmm. from total strangers can you talk about the day or the moment you understood that your mom was coming to get you or you were going to meet her again it was a very pleasant surprise that i got from uh, the people where i stayed uh, I do not know how they connected with my mom or something. I think later on, she told me that she used to send people to ask how I was doing, to ask, you know, if I was going to school, to ask if they had taken me to school and how. But now the people that, the, the, the people that housed me never told me anything. Mm. She, she told me the stories later on when I joined her because she used to send people uh, she used to ask how I, how I was and how, you know, my condition was and all that. But uh, the people where I stayed never told me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so December holidays, I think I was in primary three, I, I, I got a, a, a surprise, I mean, of my life when they told me that once that someone was going to take me, was, ta- was taking me to my mom to spend, uh, I think, two weeks with her. And then I'll be returning to go to school, to go back to school. And I couldn't believe it. And I can tell you that evening, that night, 
uh, that day, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to eat anything, even if yeah, I was given something to <laughs> eat. And, like, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. For the first time in those years, I felt like life is coming back to me. Mm. I, I didn't know how it would feel, you know, meeting my mom again, hugging my mom again, just looking into the eyes of my mom again. I, I didn't know. So the next day, uh, someone came to our place, to where we were staying, and then uh, it was real. But I, I, I jumped on a motorbike, and uh, you know, I didn't really have much mm-hmm. on me. I didn't have much to take. But the only thing that I had was the excitement, was the joy. I didn't even care if I, if my clothes were dirty or whatever it is that I had to wear just to go to see my mom, to meet my mom. So uh, someone took me, and you, 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 I just can't ex- find the words to explain how exactly it felt meeting my mom again. And mm-hmm. I think it was a very big turning point for me in those years and uh, everything that I'd gone through as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a moment of excitement. It was a moment of so many things that we couldn't believe, my mom and I. And that's when I got to know later on uh, that she had always tried to reach out. She had always tried to send people to come say hello to me, to pass greetings to me, to tell me things that she wanted to tell me. But, you know, there was no access. Mm-hmm. This information, this, this message has never reached me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but finally I knew that it was, you know, it was better. I mean, it was, it all had gone and I was with my mom. So, but one thing, that she told me moments when I just met her, we had we, we sat down, and I think we were having uh, we were having dinner. We sat down, and, and she told me, you know what? Whatever happens, however, I know they told me that you have to go back after two weeks. It won't happen. You, it's it it won't happen. You won't go back. You're gonna stay here with me. Whatever it takes, whatever it will take, I'll do it. You won't go back. You're going to stay here with me. Even if we sleep hungry, whatever happened will happen. Whatever will happen will happen. And you're, but you're not going back. For me, I felt life coming back to me. I felt like, you know, a new me um, inside me. And she, she took a step. And this time I could, I, I didn't go back. Mm-hmm. That's when a number of things started taking, making sense to me. That's when she found me a, a kind of a, a bit of a better school compared to where I used to stay. Uh, oh, I, she also bought me my first pair of shoes. <laughs> I didn't know, I, I, could, I don't know what to say about that feeling. I mean, it was very, it was so mixed. It was, it was a hybrid of sorts of things. Uh, it felt funny, like, you know, because um, my, can you imagine my feet uh, at five or six or seven that had walked all those many miles every day yeah. to school, you know, without shoes, stones, uh, thorns, you know, and we didn't have like roads. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we could, you could just find, you could, we could just simply literally walk through bushes to school and all <laughs> that. You come back home with the feet paining, thorns, all that swelling, this and that. Mm-hmm. My feet had gone through all that. But when uh, I felt shoes on my, feet for the first time i mean i don't know what to say <laughs> i you know but uh it, it was a beautiful moment so i started going back to, i said i started going to school and uh, i started bonding you know with my mom um and it felt really good i, I loved it she was an amazing amazing mother who prov- i think she worked her fingers to the bone to give me the best gift I've ever received, mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Anything, whatever failed could fail, but she never failed to take me to school. And for me, that has been, I think, it's one remarkable thing about her and whatever it is that we had to go through, it came and went. But her resolve, her resilience, her fighting spirit, in whichever conditions that we found ourselves, I mean, it's it's something very indelible. These are very indelible memories on my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. And then she was a very great storyteller. She told po- she she talked she she recited poetry in our local dialect, Luganda, to me. She told uh, folk folklore 
you know, tales and, and poetry in our local dialect. And it felt so amazing. There are evenings where she could just get me on her lap and she told me all these stories. The knowledge of which I'm, I've just gotten to understand later on in life when she passed on. I keep looking back and, and, and pick the knowledge from these stories and reconnect. I'm like, oh my, this made so much sense. You know, I can only understand now. So she was great. And my, my love, my passion for telling stories and poetry and all that started right at the lap of my mom when, mm-hmm. I, when, when I could hear uh, you know, her speak, I mean, tell these, to- these tales. And she, she was amazing. She was amazing. She even inspired me because my first pieces of, of poetry and writing were never in English. Mm-hmm. We're in our local dialect to look at. Mm-hmm. How many years did you then have with her? I stayed with my mom for about five years because she passed on. She passed on when I was 15, yeah. The, the, the five years that, 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 that we spent together, they were blissful. They, they were amazing years. But later on, she contracted HIV. And I remember at some point when she fell ill, I left school because, and those were very tough times for uh, HIV and AIDS in Uganda. I'm talking mm-hmm. in terms of uh, diagnosis, treatment, and care. Uh, those were not days of antiretroviral treatment. No, that was something unheard of. There was so much stigma, very much, so much stigma uh, in, in Uganda. Uh, there was so much isolation if someone, if villagers, if relatives, if friends knew that someone had contracted HIV. So it was very tough. Uh, I, I started the warmth in, in our house, started, you know, finding the exit. And it, it, it felt uh, sad uh, to see my mom going down this, this ugly road of pain, of discomfort, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I was always next to her. And when things really got really, really, really tough, I took a decision and I, I had to quit school to take care of her. I remember there was an auntie somewhere in Kampala, in Entebbe, uh, near Kampala, who could come in a bit here and there. She was a very close auntie, or maternal rather, maternal mm-hmm. auntie. She was a sister to my mom, and she was very close to her, uh, but she stayed far away. But she could come in, she could help a bit with, you know, with support, some, you know, kind of, you know, medic- medication, this and that. But it was really very, very tough times. It, because of, when I looked around, there weren't so many people that, because of the stigma, I think I understand, and because of, of the number of things, that the negative issues that came about mm-hmm. HIV, I, I realized I had to, it was me, there was no choice. You know, mm-hmm. in, uh, in 1999, I lost her. And I was with her up to her last breathing minute. And I... I held her hand and I saw her going. I, I watched her and I saw her breathe her last. But I remember thinking our last conversation, she, she could pick an effort here and there and talk to me. And she, she kept saying, I know you're an amazing man. You're going to be an amazing man. And I was like, Mom, why is saying this? She's like, I can see, I can look into your eyes. I know, I know your, your fighting spirit. I know you, you're going to be a great man. You, you, you're an amazing man. And she kept saying these lines over and over again. You know, every time I could hold her hand and look into, you know, her eyes and I could see her mom go and I couldn't stop it. Mm-hmm. And right, you know, looking into her eyes and holding her hand, I, I mean, she had to go. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, days close to her passing on, a voice had kind of told me, uh, I think you may not have so much to, to change, uh, but you just have to be strong. You, you just have to, to stand firm and strong and then face the reality, face whatever it is that is going to come your way. And the moment she passed on, I... There was a doctor who looked at me and for a moment and took me outside and he told me, Sam, 
You're a very strong young man. Yeah, you've taken care of your mom and you've done everything you could and you're very strong. Just, I just encourage you, just keep strong. You'll be strong. You'll be okay. But for me, when my mom passed on and, and in days of uh, HIV and AIDS in Uganda and the stigma that surrounded that and, and the stigma that surrounded issues to do with HIV and AIDS, I think for me, if you ask me, if I may go by the title of your program, of your show, of your podcast, I would say, and then everything changed. My mom passed on. My dear mom that I loved so much, the mom that was a dad at the same time to me, passed on and everything changed. Mm -hmm. Because from that time, I've realized that it was me or no one else for me. Mm -hmm. I had to face life. I had to grow up. I mean, I'd grown up, but I had to find a way to grow up in a much better, much stronger way. I knew it was all about me or nothing for me. Mm -hmm. I buried my mom. For me, that was it. That's when everything changed. I remember uh, one of the first things that I told my mom, myself when my mom we buried after we buried my mom. I had to tell myself to find a way to understand this thing, HIV and AIDS. And I looked out for places that had started efforts. There was, uh, it's still a, a big, uh, it's now a big organization in Uganda. It's called the AIDS Support Organization, TASO Uganda. Mm -hmm. I had to reach out to these people. I, I remember there is a, uh, there is a lady I knew that worked there. I had to reach out to her. And my mission was to understand this thing that killed my mom, HIV, AIDS. And I asked them if they could offer some bit of, because I knew they had started efforts of uh, training, of uh, you know, getting people to understand. Of, uh, now they had even started some efforts in schools uh, of uh, peer peer trainers, peer educators in HIV and AIDS. And I asked this lady to find me a way to uh, get me on board on some of these programs. And uh, she was so kind. She was amazed by, because, I mean, these were days when no one ever wanted to associate themselves mm -hmm. with uh, the scourge. So she was amazed. She was like, okay, I've not met someone like you, a young man like you, who would love to understand some of these things. I told her, I want to make a contribution. I want to understand this thing. I want to make a contribution. I, especially to young people uh, and to my community and my country. And that's when I, I, I joined the program. It was called the AIDS Challenge Youth Club, ACYC in Uganda. Mm -hmm. And I joined, um, I got a training. We, I, it's I, like, I really had to dig deep into this thing to understand what exactly it took my mom because it was a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. I saw my mom go through pain that I'd never seen her go through. We were both in pain. Uh, watching her go through that pain was so painful. Like watching her go to zero, like her life go to zero, everything go to zero, her body and, you know, everything go to zero. I, it was so painful. Mm -hmm. So that anger, that pain pushed me to the extreme and I had really to understand these things. So, I got training. I after the training, uh, I was now an HIV peer educator, and uh, with uh, a group of some young people, we started going out to schools. We started engaging young people uh, in schools in high school, um, and we, we were, you know, mentoring. We were talking to fellow young people about HIV because now we had the knowledge. We had, and every time I did it, I knew I was doing it for me, but more so for my mom and uh, for the generation that I knew, I would really, I wouldn't really want to, to see go through the same, the same ugly way, mm -hmm. uh, the same ugly road. Can you imagine? Uh, it's, it's, the stigma was so deep to the extent that every time uh, in societies, in communities in Uganda, every time someone knew that someone worked for example, with the AIDS support organization, TASO, or anything to do with uh, HIV and AIDS, many times the stigma, out of stigma, people would imagine that you, you're already HIV positive. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, 
uh, people, I mean, my close friends and sometimes some family people started asking whether, you know, I was HIV positive. Why would you do that if you're not HIV positive? Mm-hmm. That's, that kind of work is for people that are positive. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very big thing in Uganda. Up to the present day, I, I, I can hear, I can still hear people, you know, making these statements. So the stigma that has been around uh, this thing, has, I mean, the scourge, has been another, I mean, a very ch- big challenge to deal with uh, in this fight. So later on, my, my, my auntie, my maternal auntie, who was very close to us, came through on my education. Because one of the, I think the biggest, when I, when I started finding the effort to come to terms, with the fact that my mom had gone, my biggest, my next biggest worry was how am I going to continue with the school? Mm-hmm. Because it's something that I loved so much, but now everything had gone. Yes. And I, I was very lucky when um, my auntie from Entebbe came through and she said, you know what? I'm going to take care of your education up to university. Wow. For me, it was so humbling. It was because that's all I needed. Absolutely. I, I, I didn't even care whether where I was going to stay or what I was going to eat, but something I was like, okay, now my mom had gotten me to school. I was starting to make sense of life and appreciating school. And she, she kept telling me the best you can do for yourself is do good at school. Mm-hmm. You know, get better at school, push yourself, learn things, understand. That's the best you'll ever have in this world. So I went through high school, and then later on, I, I went to university. And along the way, I started the bit of writing that I had picked from my mom and the inspiration to write took a bit of a shift. I started looking at myself as someone who would use my passion, which then was writing, mm-hmm. to champion serious causes. First, the rights of women and girls. Picking from my mom and picking from the stories I knew uh, about our village and growing up and how we were treated girls and all that, I wanted to use my passion now for a cause, to champion a cause. I wanted to champion, I wanted to stand in some gap. I wanted to change society positively. There are things I wanted to do like I wanted to use my anger and pain and loss to do something positive for myself, for my mom. And I knew so many women like my mom were there out there without a voice, without someone to speak for them. But I knew I would make a point. I would champion a voice. When I got to university, I started writing pieces, sending pieces to the dailies in Uganda. But every time, I mean, I did that for so many years, for about close to five years, I used to send, like, uh, the topics that I was very passionate about, I could get down, write, um, send an email uh, to these uh, newspapers. And for about five years, no one ever replied me. Not even mm-hmm. someone to, to, to recognize and say, oh, uh, just to, you know, to, to recognize receipt yeah. of my email or something. That never happened. But I kept writing because literally everyone calls me every day uh, from a newspaper, from a TV, from a radio, and they want to interview me. They want, But now that it's happening, I, it's the time for me uh, that I take a moment to reflect back and like, but how come no one ever replied in for five years for all the pieces <laughs> I sent to I think that's when you understand that when you're true to your cause, when you're true to your passion, when you're honest with your passion and you're true to your cause, no matter what happens, no matter how long it's going to take, you know, it will make sense someday. It will make sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought about you. You said why, you know, when you started working with the HIV organization uh and and now when you're um you're a male women activist you know why would you do this why are you doing this why are you interested in this and it seems to be somewhat of a theme in your life to 
to be asked why you have an interest in these causes and things that you care about. Oh, sure. And like I said it earlier on in uh, this conversation, I think it's true that it's the troubles that befall a man that help bring out the best in him. I have found myself in uh, a place where I am today because of things that have happened to me before. You had no time with your father. You had a hard time with your mother. You had a beautiful time with your mother. You had a hard loss without your mother. Then you were kind of rescued and had education. And and now you're living this life of a writer and activist. And I feel like as a, as a witness to the story that you're telling, your life has been so very hard in so many ways. And at the same time, you've been gifted in a way, unfortunately, too little time with your mother, but with a, a relationship that some people never got with their mother. But that also makes it painful. Oh, yes, it does. Absolutely, it does. Do you have someone or do you have a relationship in your life now? Do you hope to get, do you hope to be partnered with somebody yourself? Absolutely, I'm looking forward to that. A very interesting question, Ronit. When you talked about my father and the fact that I've never met my dad, I think it was about uh, a couple of years also ago uh, when I received a call from uh, I think the biggest radio station in, in Kampala it's called Capture Frame. so it was I think on Father's Day now a number of these people on radio and uh, in the media in Uganda know my ish they have read my stories they have you know read my newspaper articles and you know interviews they have listened to me on TV and, and all that so they gave me a call and they were wondering my take uh, they were thinking of uh, what I would say about Father's Day uh, from my from a perspective of, of someone like me who has never had a father yeah. figure in their life, who has never, you know, lived with a father, who has never seen their father. And I gave it to them and I, I made it clear that even when I never had a father in my life, uh, it doesn't stop me from being the best father that I could ever be, you know, that I can be in, in, in life. And uh, it goes beyond simply you know having this figure this human being as a father it goes beyond that it, it's mm-hmm. so many things because i i, I think uh, father is, is father sh- should be about care and looking out for their family and for their loved ones and i know these are things i received from my mom mm-hmm. and i told them that the father i knew i had was in my mom so i saw her do it all so it it, it i know that I had nothing to change. Those were the circumstances. That was, that was the reality that I never had my father. But it, it can never stop me from being the best father that I can ever be, you know? I feel like when you're ready to uh, find someone and to, to have a family, it's, I think you're just going to be amazing. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. It's not, so. It's, not, it's not easy work, but I think you'll be amazing. Sam, do you, uh, I was hoping in the time that we have left, I was hoping mm. you might read a poem. Oh, interesting. So from, um, from my book, Enough, because I'm, 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 very, I'm very passionate about um, the rights of women and, 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 and girls for reasons that now you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or your listener would know, but also issues to do with uh, social justice, issues to do with um, inclusion are very close to my heart. So in Uganda, we've come a long way dealing with issues of inclusion, you know, discrimination, and, and, and you realize so many would-be great government projects, you know, great development projects do not actually live to the expectations uh, for which they were set mm. uh, because of because we still have to exclude people based on gender, age, social class, you know, and, and a lot of you know, even ethnicity, tribes. Tribes are uh, exclusion based on uh, tribes or tribal tendencies are, are very big in this country. And it's, it's something I, I found time to write about uh, and I put a piece uh, to do with that. The title of this is Because I Am. Because I Am. What happened after that interview? You said I did well in your view. So you gave the job to your nephew. 
with his incompetence I can't describe just because I'm from the other tribe? What happened to the bill you passed after all the consultations you rushed? What will happen to the future you want so fast when you choose to forget your past? So you found my opinion unpleasant just because I'm a peasant? What's the point in skyscrapers, your beautiful office on the 10th floor? Those you serve are below the ground floor. My efforts to access your flow have not made it past ground floor. Access to your services unabled because I'm disabled. What's wrong with your eyes? You can't see my hand raised so high. I hold a stake in this city. My voice, you can't hear. What a pity. You care not that I'm dedicated just because I am not educated. I am sick of your equality talk. Somebody better walk the talk. I still sweat blood to prosper. When I make it, I hear you whisper. So treat me with dignity, you man. Not just because I'm a woman, but because first, I am human. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. You know, you were recently in D.C., is that right, for a conference? Yes, I was in D.C. recently. Yes. What was that conference? Uh, the conference was organized by uh, the Center for Media and uh, Social Impact at uh, American University, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got an invitation uh, to attend this conference. And it's a, it was a conference for uh, civic media, people who are using media for civic or social impact, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was an amazing experience for me. It was a pool of people from all over the world that are making change, social change, using media. And someone who is involved, um, my background is media, broadcast media, TV. Uh, but now later on, I had to move to uh, something my own, and it's all about civic media. So black candle media, uh, you know, leverages so much uh, civic media. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we're trying to make change using media. Uh, so we do publishing, we do communication consultancy, and, uh, and then we do a lot of trainings to do with uh, young people, you know, getting young people to, to understand, I mean, to write stories that actually, you know, uh, impact society and stories that bring out social, you know, social impact. Where can people find more about you if they want to follow you or learn more about your work? Oh, first of all, I would love to say thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm humbled when I hear you uh, put an effort to uh, works like mine to be shared globally with the, with the rest of the world and to know, uh, to, to know the kind of work that someone like me down in Uganda is doing. And I know, and I know these are shared values. These are shared causes all over the world. Uh, if you talk about the rights of women and girls and social justice, these are things that cut across. So my works can be, people can access my works on uh, like a lot of social media pages. I'm on Facebook, Sam J. Sumaganda. Instagram, somewhere in Africa. Somewhere in Africa is written with S-A-M. I I love that. That's I think that's my favorite handle. (laughs) Oh sure. And my Twitter handle is somewhere in Africa. Okay. With S A M, not Mm -hmm. S O M E. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone was bothering me to explain why I use somewhere in Africa. And actually, my email address is somewhere in Africa. Uh-huh. So people have been someone about a couple of weeks ago, uh, weeks ago. So was bothering me to was putting me to task to explain how I come up with that. I'm like, I come from Africa, and I believe somewhere in Africa is a story we've not yet heard. Somewhere in uh-huh. Africa is a story that we need to hear. Somewhere in Africa is an innovation we need to hear. We need to know about. Somewhere in Africa is 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 an invention that the world needs to know about. That story is there. I can tell that story. It is out there. It's up to me to go out there. It's up to us to look out, you know, to, the, uh, to look out each other, for each other and then tell the story. Somewhere in Africa, something is happening. Yes. I'm so happy we got to talk. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the work that you're doing, Sam. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And I'm very delighted and uh, very grateful to 
you know, to have you having me on uh, your amazing podcast. <laughs> and then everything changed. I think it's very powerful. It's so moving. It's so telling. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.